Good evening, everybody, and welcome to our live stream Bible study in the book of Revelation. So if you would turn there, I'd appreciate that. And uh, while you're doing that, let's uh, just open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight in Jesus' precious name. And Lord, of course, you're the Lord of glory. This is your word, and I just seek to be an instrument in your mighty hands that your spirit would truly be our teacher, Lord bringing these things forward in the power of your spirit for your glory. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. If you're just joining us, we have started a study in the book of Revelation. And the outline of the book of Revelation is given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ himself in chapter 1, verse 19, where he commanded John to write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. And so the outline of the book is simply three main divisions. Write the things which you have seen. That would be the vision of Jesus in chapter 1. Write the things which are. That would be the things of chapters 2 and 3, or in other words, the things that pertain to the church or the church age. John was writing uh, during the church age, we are still in the church age. That will continue until the rapture. And then, number three, write the things which will take place after this. The Greek is metatauta, after these things, after the things of the church, after the church is raptured out of here, the third division of the book begins. We'll study that in a few weeks. So, chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near." As I said, uh, the first two weeks of our study, I hold to the futuristic view with regard to the book of Revelation. The futuristic view maintains that the book is prophetic revelation. Verse 3 of chapter 1 tells us it's a prophecy. And I believe it's a prophecy of things that have yet happened, that are still future. But even though the book of Revelation looks ahead, looks forward, and reveals the future, look, it also looks back and brings together all the prophetic threads running throughout the Old Testament primarily. It does reach into the New Testament uh, and, uh, and tie some things up. But mostly, yes, it looks forward into the future. It's prophetic. But it also looks back and kind of ties together all the prophetic threads running through the Old Testament primarily. As we said last week, Revelation contains 404 verses, and 278 of them allude back to the Old Testament containing 550 references, especially to the symbols used that describe future end times events. Now, I've said it before, let me say it again. This, I believe, is part of the blessing that God promised in verse 3. Upon those who read and study this book, it will take you on a journey through practically every book in the Old Testament 
and act as a key, unlocking the symbolisms in those books. But not only that, guys. The book of Revelation takes the prophecies in the Old Testament that deal with eschatology. That means the study of uh, end th last things or end times. Study of end times. It brings together the prophecies of the end times that are scattered throughout the Old Testament and brings them together in chronological order. You know, as I have studied passages in the Old Testament prophetic books, books like Isaiah and Jeremiah and so on, often I'll be reading uh, a passage and it uh, predicts some future event, something that's going to take place uh, in the future. And then I'll keep reading and maybe a few verses below that, it gives another future event, prophesizes of another future event that will take place. Now, if you're reading Isaiah or Jeremiah when this happens, you'd be prone to think, well, uh, you know, these are in chronological order. The passage about the uh, prophecy uh, that came first will happen first, and then, of course, the one I read uh, secondly will happen after it. However, that's not always true. In fact, if I didn't know Revelation, I'd be prone to think that, but uh, because I know the book of Revelation, uh, I know that when I read these prophetic books in the Old Testament, I know that sometimes there are prophecies that comes after uh, a prophecy. Well, in Revelation, it tells us that it actually comes before that prophecy in that passage. Hope I'm not confusing you. But look, part of the blessing of the book of Revelation is that it takes these end times prophecies, which are sprinkled throughout the Old Testament in no particular order, and brings them together chronologically, allowing us to see how they're going to unfold and come to pass in linear time. In fact, something I didn't bring up in the Revelation study I did 13 years ago uh, is the use of the word, the Greek word kai in the book, K-A-I. Look, every book in the Bible contains some key words that occur frequently and uh, reveal the emphasis uh, in the book. Now, one of those in Revelation is the word and, the Greek is kai. One author said, and I quote, This may seem like a strange word to include in a list of key words in the book because it's so common, but it occurs 1,200 times in Revelation. Nearly every verse in Revelation begins with the word chi in the original Greek text of the New Testament. It is sometimes translated as but, even, both, also, then, yet, or indeed, but it is most often translated simply as and. The rapid-fire repetition of this word rushes the book along at a breathtaking rate. As you go through Revelation, you, you read and, 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 and. Using and in this way is a powerful literary technique. As one author says, and he's quoting another a source, one cannot read this book and mentally stand still. The reader will sense consciously or unconsciously that he or she is moving through a series of events that appear like instantaneous flashes on a video screen. These glimpses of the future are intended to keep us moving toward the final consummation of human history. The closing chapters actually fast forward us into eternity itself, end quote. Guys, 
Not only does the use of the Greek word chi serve to move the book along in a rapid-fire succession, it also serves to tell us that John is seeing these events, yes, <laughs> unfolding rapidly, but also chronologically. When you see, talk about the word and at almost the beginning of every sentence, it, think of and then is the idea. And then, and then, and then, as John is seeing these things just flashing, uh, you know, like like images on a screen. And he's just rapidly, you know, and then I saw this, and then, and then. It just tells us that the book is moving along rapidly, but also chronologically. All right, verse 4. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and uh, who was and who was to come, and from the seven spirits that who are before the, his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to our God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. In the millennial kingdom, all right, in the millennium, the redeemed of the Lord will reign on the earth as kings and priests. Revelation 5 verse 10 makes this abundantly clear when it says, and have made, this is the redeemed are on the throne of God, praising God, and the redeemed say, among other things, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Look, under the Old Testament economy, it was unlawful for anyone to, to occupy the offices of king and priest simultaneously. A man was either one or the other, or, of course, neither, but he couldn't be both. He couldn't be both priest and king. We uh, read in Second Chronicles 26, verses 16 to 23, that King Uzziah tried to combine the two offices when he went into the temple to burn incense to God on the altar of incense, something only the priests were allowed to do. And as he did this, God struck him with leprosy because it was forbidden. But under the new covenant, we can be like Jesus. He is our example. And in the sense that he is both king and priest, actually he is king and high priest. Uh, you can read Luke chapter 1, verses 31 to 33, Hebrews 4, verse 14. And guys, we have a lot of scriptures uh, tonight, and I will read many of them to you. Uh, others, I will just give you the reference so you can look them up on your own, or you can wait until tomorrow when the notes are printed online. You can pull them down and then go through them at your leisure. But um, I don't have time to look through, uh, look up all of these. But um, the ones I just gave you, the references in Luke and Hebrews talk about Jesus being both uh, priest and king. But listen, in the millennial kingdom, Believers, I'm talking about believers now, Christians, uh, during that time are going to be kings and rule over various cities and regions on the earth during the millennial kingdom. Now, Jesus talked about that in Luke chapter 19, and in particular, verse 17, where he talked about faithfulness in this life to him will be rewarded in the millennial kingdom with uh, areas of authority that people will be uh, uh, in authority over and all. But uh, also, not only will we be kings, rulers, but we will also be priests 
who are going to serve the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, our great high priest, the high priest of our faith. Um, but we're going to be priests during this time. And what does that mean? Well, it means we're going to be spiritual leaders. We're going to be praying for people. We're going to be intercessors, even as Jesus Christ is our great intercessor right now. But uh, we're going to be praying for people, ministering to people, and uh, leading many of them to faith in Christ. Remember now, people born during the money of kingdom are born unbelievers and will need to make a commitment to Christ. We are going to be there to help them make that commitment, pray for them and witness to them, of course. And possibly another um, uh, uh, avenue of our service will be, and this sounds a little strange, but it could be as priests that we will offer literal animal sacrifices to God during the millennial kingdom in the millennial temple. Now, I realize that sounds like a, a, an odd thing, that uh, Jesus Christ has come and uh, replaced the old covenant, which was a covenant based on animal sacrifice that temporarily covered sins. He was the, the, the perfect sinless lamb of God who went to the cross and died for our sins to take them away forever. So why in the millennial kingdom are there going to be priests offering up sacrifices to God? Well, we're not sure that it's going to be that way, although I will have you read the last few chapters of the book of Ezekiel, chapters 40 to 48, which many scholars believe is talking about the millennial temple. And you'll see that uh, animal sacrifices will be taking place if that is what it is. You say, well, why? We're not sure why. The best we can come up with is that these animal sacrifices, they're not going to atone for sin. Jesus Christ is the only one who has done that. But uh, they're going to be offered as a memorial in some way. So uh, we'll have to see how that works out. But that could be one of our responsibilities in the millennial kingdom. And that is to, as, a, as priests to offer sacrifices to God there uh, in the millennial temple, taking shifts, no doubt. Uh, you know, and uh, uh, courses of priests, uh, as David uh, orga organized uh, Levites and priests to serve different uh, weeks of the year and so on. That could be very well what we might be doing. All right, back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. It says, Behold, he, Jesus, is coming with clouds. Now, you remember when we studied the book of Daniel, we came to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, where Daniel said, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, that would be God the Father, and they brought him near before him. Who or what are these clouds? Well, I believe it's, it is referring to the church, the Bride of Christ, and to God's holy angels who will be returning to the earth with Jesus to establish his kingdom. And again, I want to read you some of these uh, references. I won't I won't have you turn to them, but I'll just read them to you. You can write down the references. Matthew 25, verse 31. Jesus said, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. Let me just stop there. So Jesus himself says when he comes to the earth, his second coming, uh, he's going to have the holy angels with him. So they're going to be in, in that group. Jude uh, chapter 1, verse 14 Jude said, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands 
of his saints. Now, the word saints there in the Greek is a word that's never used of angels. So these are a special group. The word means holy ones, set apart ones, and that's a reference, we believe, to the church. So in these two scriptures, we know that angels will come with Jesus at his second coming, and so will his church, his bride. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 13 so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Again, a reference to Christians, uh, Christian believers in Christ or the church will come back with Jesus uh, to establish his kingdom. Hebrews 12 verse 1, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of, of witnesses. And this, I believe, is a reference to the, to the uh, church saints, uh, believers in Christ that have already died, their soul and spirit are already in heaven. All right. Uh, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, because these folks are kind of cheering us on in a sense. They've gone before us. And many of them have lived uh, righteous lives and have died honoring the Lord. And now we don't want to disappoint them. We want to continue that uh, grand tradition of finishing well. we got a whole cloud of witnesses that are kind of cheering us on, you might say. I'll give you one more. Revelation 19, verse 14. Revelation 19 does talk about Jesus' literal return to the planet Earth, his second coming. And it says, and the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses as he's coming now to the earth to establish his kingdom. Look, the army of God's saints and angels coming with Jesus in the sky, riding white horses and wearing white robes from a distance will look like beautiful clouds coming to the earth. And I believe that's what John had in mind. Well, again, verse 7. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so. Amen. Of course, this coming that John speaks of right here, this coming of the Lord Jesus won't be the rapture. Won't be the rapture. If you're kind of new with us, you can read about the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 13 through 18, and then again in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses 50 to 54, somewhere around there. When Jesus comes in the rapture for his church, uh, he's going to come in the air. He's not going to actually come to the earth itself. He'll come halfway. He will come in the air and he will snatch away, or that's what the word rapture means, to snatch away. Uh, he will snatch away or evacuate his church off the earth in preparation for God's judgment to be poured out, which is what uh, Revelation 6 through 19 are all about, talking about this very judgment. But um, when Jesus comes for his church at the rapture, God's word, God's word tells us he will listen. Come as a thief. Come as a thief. Revelation 3, verse 3. In chapter 16, verse 15, tell us this, and only those who are born again will see him. 
At the rapture, the whole world won't see him coming. He'll come invisibly for his church. And when he raptures us off this earth, we're going to be instantly in his presence. We're going to see him face to face. We'll see him, but the world won't see him. Only the redeemed, only the church that is raptured off the earth at this uh, moment will see him. You can check out 1 John 3, verses 1 through 3. We will see him, but the world won't. The event described by John in, chap in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, is the second coming of Jesus Christ and will be witnessed by the whole world, by the whole world, and especially, listen, by a repentant nation of Israel. In Zechariah chapter 12, verses 10 through 12, we read, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of, Jeru of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for his firstborn. In Revelation 1, verse 7, the latter part, that's one of those uh, allusions back to the Old Testament. And here we see it very clearly. Uh, verse 7, John is talking about, uh, or he's quoting really from the prophet Zechariah, uh, what he said in, in chapter 12, verses 10 to 12. So we see this quite a bit where uh, John, throughout the book of Revelation, keeps referring back to Old Testament events or prophecies and so on. But let me just say this. When we studied 2 Peter, we noted how that Peter warned us that in the last days there would come, there would come scoffers, scoffers, mockers, who would be saying, where is the promise of his coming? You can read about that in 2 Peter 3, verse 4. Or in other words, <laughs> mockers who will be saying to Christians, you know, you Christians have been talking about Jesus' return for 2,000 years. Uh, when will you admit you were wrong and that he isn't coming back? Well, Peter supplies the answer to Christians who let scoffers sow doubts in their hearts as to why, I mean, why that even though God has promised us Jesus is going to return, why after 2,000 years, he still hasn't returned, which has caused Christians to become discouraged, uh, some to fall into this idea that maybe he's not coming back at all. Maybe it was all allegorical, and uh, he's not really literally coming back to the earth. Well, Peter uh, anticipates those thoughts, and he says in 2 Peter 3, verses 8 through 9, But, beloved, do not forget this one thing that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any, any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So first of all, I know it's been 2,000 years since the Lord began to promise, uh, promise us in the New Testament that Jesus Christ was coming back, uh, bodily to establish his kingdom. But in God's economy, it's only been a couple days because, you know, a thousand years to the Lord's like a day and so on. But also God is um, has waited all this time because he loves sinners. And um, every day he waits and Jesus doesn't come back, more people get saved. 
And I'm just thankful that Jesus didn't come back five minutes before I got saved because I would have been lost and on my way to hell uh, for eternity. I'm just so thankful that the Lord waited uh, until I had a time to really receive him. And now I belong to him. And, uh, you know, I don't ever ask the Lord to hurry up because I know that every day he delays his coming, people get saved. And uh, that we want to see that. All right. But one pastor uh, had this response to scoffers and deniers of Christ's return. He said, and I quote, despite the scoffers who deny the second coming, the Bible repeatedly affirms that Jesus will return. That truth appears in more than 500 verses throughout the Bible. It has been estimated that one out of every 25 verses in the New Testament refers to the second coming. Jesus repeatedly spoke of his return and warned believers to be ready for it. The return of the Lord Jesus Christ to this earth is thus a central theme in Scripture, end quote. God, you know, when God really wants to stress something, he repeats himself. He doesn't have to because God's word is good no matter if he only says something once, we, we, we know it. God never lies. He can't lie, okay? Uh, but if God really wants to emphasize, he, emphasize the surety of something, he starts repeating himself, usually uh, just the second time. But in the Bible, he repeats himself 500 times that Jesus Christ is going to come back to the earth bodily. I mean, that should put aside all doubts, uh, all doubts. But But listen. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, John does say something that's puzzling, all right? That when Jesus returns to the earth at his second coming, John says, every eye shall see him. Every eye will see him. How can that be? Since when he comes, you know, it will be day on one side of the earth and night on the other. Many people will be on the opposite side of the earth when Jesus returns. So how could everyone see him at the same time when he comes? Well, some respond by saying it's going to be on TV. It's going to be on TV like, like a major sporting event, like the Olympics. You know, when, when the Olympics is televised, I mean, uh, everyone across the whole planet can turn on their TV and watch something happening in one part of the world. That's what's going to happen. Of course, critics say, well, wait a minute. How are these people going to know when Jesus is going to return? How are they going to be ready uh, with their cameras rolling and everything else? I mean, how does that work? Well, look, that is not really a problem because the Bible tells us, first of all, I can tell you Revelation chapter 11, verse 3, Revelation 13, verse 5, and many other places, those two in particular, tell us that from the time the Antichrist sets up his image in the Holy of Holies in the rebuilt temple of Jerusalem and, de and demands to be worshipped as God 1260 days later or 42 months. And in the Bible, a month, prophetic month is 60 uh, excuse me, 30 days. So from the time the Antichrist sets up his image in the Holy of Holies in the rebuilt temple, uh, from that time until Jesus re returns is going to be 1260 days. Look, the Antichrist and his armies are going to know the exact day that Jesus Christ is going to return, and from the book of Revelation, where he is going to return. And so they're going to be waiting for him. Revelation 19 tells us this. They'll be waiting for him. The Antichrist and all of his armies are going to be waiting in the Valley of Megiddo on the very day 
that Jesus Christ is going to return because they know exactly when it's going to be. And why are they waiting there? Because they want to go to war against the Lord Jesus, if you can imagine that, uh, to keep him from reigning, from establishing his kingdom. They think they can actually go to war against God uh, with their surface-to-air missiles and Apache helicopters and bazookas and whatever. They think they're going to defeat the, the God of all creation, coming back to take possession of the world he has bought and paid for with his own blood on Calvary's cross. How deceived can people be? But not only will they be there waiting for Jesus' return, you're going to also have ABC, uh, CNN, ESPN, uh, all the major news outlets are going to be there waiting, filming uh, this event. They're going to be there. Everything's going to be focused on the skies. They're this is the day they're going to be filming it, and I kind of believe uh, while they're there filming, they're going to be rooting for the Antichrist to win because they're such liberal doofuses. I mean, I, I'm sorry, I hate to put it that way, but, uh, you know, talk about people who call good evil and evil good, all right? I mean, the world is full of people that are so morally inverted. They would rather see the Antichrist uh, rule the world than the Lord Jesus Christ. How tragic, just a sign of where we are. Um, in this time of history. But, um, you know, that's one group. Yeah, every, every eye is going to see him because it could be on TV. It could be on TV, televised throughout the entire world. Others believe since not everybody on the planet Earth owns a TV, and God said every eye will see him return, uh, these believe that when Jesus returns, God's going to work a miracle so that every person, listen, no matter where they are on the earth at that moment, will be able to supernaturally see him. Okay, I have no problem with that. It could be very, very possible that that's the way it's going to happen. Still others suggest, and maybe you've never heard this, still others suggest that the second coming is not going to be an instantaneous thing like the rapture. No, it's going to be a gradual event lasting an entire day or longer. If this is true, well, it would allow every eye on earth to see him as the earth rotates and everybody sees Jesus coming uh, with these clouds. One author said, and I quote, the second coming could last for 24 hours or even longer as his victory train marches slowly and majestically from heaven to earth. This could be hinted at in Matthew 24, verse 30, which says, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. The author says the sign of the Son of Man is probably the coming of Christ as it, is, as it first appears, and people on earth begin to get their first glimpse of his approach and glory. While we can't be certain about the exact details of how Christ's return will happen, we can be sure it will happen, and that when it does, every eye will see him, end quote. Revelation 1, verse 8, Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, which some com commentators interpret to mean that as God, 
Jesus is able to begin anything he desires and will finish everything he starts. Others believe that this is a reference to the fact that Jesus never starts anything he doesn't plan to finish, including, listen now, including and especially when it comes to each individual believer's faith and redemption. That would be consistent with Hebrews 12, verse 2, which says, looking unto Jesus, the author, the Greek is the originator, and finisher of our faith, which parallels what Paul said in Philippians. And I do believe Paul wrote Hebrews. So this is the same person talking, the same person that said, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, also said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it. He began a good work in you when he started calling you, and you responded, and you received him as your Lord and Savior, and were born again. Um, that's not where the work ended. That's where it began. After that, your whole life was a sanctifying process. But the work of redemption was not finished at that time. Paul said, he was begun a good work, and you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. The uh, uh, the Amplified Bible says that uh, this work will be uh, will be completed at the very moment of Jesus' return. Well, you don't have to turn there, but First John chapter three verse two, it says that um, when he uh, when he appears, we're going to see him as he is, and we're going to be then made like him. So when Jesus appears for his church at the rapture, when we're caught up to meet him in the air and we see him face to face, we are going to be made like him. That's what is being talked about. He is the, the beginner and the finisher of the work of redemption. Let me read to you a few of these scriptures. And again, just write down the references. But um, again, God never starts anything he leaves unfinished, first of all. God never starts anything he leaves unfinished. You know, my dad was a great guy. Very handy guy, okay? and But he worked three jobs to provide for, you know, his wife, my mom, and his five kids. So he would start a project and not really finish these projects. I mean, all throughout our house growing up, there were unfinished pro uh, projects. My dad started, intended to finish, but never got around to. As a kid, I saw that, and I thought, when I get a house, I'm never going to uh, do this. And I think I've kept that promise to myself because when I start a project in my own house, I can't rest until it's finished. I cannot leave it uh, unfinished for years. Okay. I mean, that's not something I inherited from my earthly father, but I think I did from my heavenly father. Uh, but God never starts anything he leaves unfinished, especially when it comes to the full redemption of his church. Let me read to you what I'm talking about. Hebrews 7, verse 25. Therefore, he, Jesus, is also able to save us to the uttermost. The Greek word means all the way to completion. He is able to save us all the way to completion. You say, wait a minute. Salvation is not a process. You're either saved or you're not saved. Yes and no. You're either saved or you're not saved from hell. But um, the work of redemption is a process. You say, what do you mean? Hang on, okay? 
that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost, all the way to completion, those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Tremendous verse, uh, not appreciated by enough Christians uh, for the enormity of what's really being said here. Go online. I don't have time to get into it. Go online, listen to our Hebrew study in chapter 7. You, It'll be worth your time. But Romans 8, Paul gives us a little more insight uh, on this subject. Romans 8, verse 23. I'll read it to you out of the NLT 2, second edition. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. See, redemption uh, starts the moment we receive Christ. We are, we are saved from hell, of course. We'll never perish. But immediately uh, our spirit is revived. Uh, our soul is, is made brand new. We are a brand new creation. But these bodies, uh, they are not redeemed yet. They are still of the earth. Someday they're going to die if Jesus doesn't return for us at the rapture. They will die, be buried, and return back to the dust of the earth. Uh, and so there's a further work of redemption that will encompass our earthly bodies. And that is when Jesus comes for his church at the rapture, uh, we will be resurrected and our bodies will be glorified, the full redemption, and then be reunited with our soul and spirit. That's what's going on. Jesus said in John 6, verse 39, This, will, this is the will of the Father who sent me that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing. Now listen, of all that the Father gave the Son with regard to his bride, all the people that make up the bride of Christ, Jesus said, I'm not going to lose any. Because if someone gets saved, but then slips through the Lord's fingers and is lost before the rapture, um, that work in their life will be unfinished. And the Lord Jesus Christ never leaves anything unfinished, especially when it comes to the redemption of his people. And so if you have received Christ as your Lord and Savior, know this, God has promised you that you will be glorified. Read Romans 8, um, verse, uh, verses 30 to 31 or 2. Talks about that. If you have been redeemed, uh, you will be glorified. Your, your body will be uh, glorified. Your redemption will be completed at that moment, all right? But um, this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing. No one's going to perish, but should raise it up at the last day. Speaking of the rapture, the rapture is when we receive our glorified bodies, all right? One author comments on this. He said, and I quote, If Jesus is both the beginning and the end, then he is also then he also has authority over everything in between. This means that Jesus has a plan for history, and he directs the paths of human, paths of human events toward his designed fulfillment. Our lives are not given over to blind fate, to random meaninglessness, or to endless cycles with no resolution. Instead, Jesus Christ, who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, 
directs all of human history and even our individual lives, end quote. He is in control, and what he has started, he will complete. Again, Revelation 1, verse 8, Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Guys, Jesus is the eternal God. Verse 4 tells us that. He is, uh, and as the eternal God, um, he is unlimited by time because he's outside of time. He's eternal. But he is also the Almighty, which means he is able to do anything, anything. You can read Luke chapter, excuse me, uh, Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 27, Luke chapter 1, verse 37. But in uh, Jeremiah, the Lord is speaking. It says, I am the God of all flesh, the Lord Almighty. Nothing is hard for me. Or I think he poses it as a question, is there anything too hard for me? The answer, of course, is nothing. Uh, the angel Gabriel, when he was announcing to Mary, she had been chosen to be the mother of the Messiah. Uh, and the Messiah was going to come from her uh, without uh, any, um, uh, you know, any input from a man. Um, she would bear this child, uh, and it would be a virgin-born child. And Gabriel then said, uh, for with God nothing shall be impossible. That's right, because he's almighty. Now, guys, nine times in the book of Revelation, God is referred to as almighty. Interestingly, he's only called almighty one time before the book of Revelation. That's in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 18. The reason could be that in no other book in the New Testament is God's almighty power on display like it is in the book of, like it is in the book of Revelation which is why he has called Almighty over and over and over again. The word Almighty is from the Greek word pentakrater, pentakrater, which is a combination of two Greek words, pentos, which means all or everything, and krator, which means to hold, to hold. So putting these two words together, the word Almighty literally means the one who holds or controls everything. The omnipotent one is the idea. Again, one author said, and I quote, Jesus Christ is the beginning and the end. He spans time and eternity and exhausts the vocabulary of excellence. He is the source and goal of creation, and it is he who began and will end the divine program in the world. He started everything. He's the one that created all things. John opens up his gospel and said, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by him. Without him was nothing made that was made. Jesus Christ began everything with the creation, and he's going to finish the work at the culmination when he takes his throne and reigns over the world, and then we move off into the eternal state after the millennial kingdom comes to an end. But... Um, the author said, he, he who began and will end the divine program in the world, he is and was and is to come eternal in his being and almighty in power, end quote. And so, guys, Revelation has a great emphasis, and you see this all the way through the book, but Revelation has great emphasis on God's sovereignty, that he has his hands on everything, 
everyone and is in complete control of every circumstance. That's our God. That's the God of evangelical Christians. Uh, that's not the God of deists who believe that God created everything and then retreated to a neutral corner and never gets involved and lets everything just kind of kind of wind up the the clock and just lets it run by itself now and he never gets involved in the affairs of man. He's not sovereign. He's not in control. It's absolutely not the God of the Bible. That's not the God John is describing, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is intimately involved with everything that concerns us individually and the world in general. Uh, he is not, not one hair. He, he Every hair in our head is numbered. Um, not a sparrow falls to the ground, but what he doesn't know it. And so he is intimately involved in this creation, although he remains transcendent from it, uh, outside of the creation, able to do whatever he wants, not subject to his creation, but very much involved in every aspect of his creation. Again, Revelation verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 9. John said, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom... Uh, and excuse me, let me just back up again. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island, island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, John isn't talking about the great tribulation here, but the tribulation under Emperor Domitian, a brutal period of persecution uh, that I think went from 303 A.D. to 313, but um, just a brutal period of time. And um, I might be thinking of a different emperor, but I know Domitian was very brutal, and uh, during his reign the church was very much persecuted as he tried to stomp out the Christian church. Uh, our English word tribulation comes from a Latin word tribulum, Tribulum. In Paul's day, a tribulum was a heavy piece of timber with spikes in it, and it was used for threshing the grain, so that when they would uh, harvest the sheaves uh, of grain, they would lay them on the threshing floor, and then they would drag this tribulum over it, this heavy uh, log with these nails sticking out of it, and as they did back and forth, it, it separated the wheat from the chaff, and then they would winnow the uh, remains and the chaff would blow away and the grain would fall, and that's how they separated it. But it first started with the tribulum, okay? Where we get our word tribulation from? One author, uh, one writer says, and I quote, As we go through tribulations and depend on God's grace, the trials only purify us and help to get rid of chaff in our lives, that which is uh, not fruitful, that which doesn't produce anything. All the junk that we allow to um, uh, to capture our attention and to waste our time with. Uh, tribulation is a way of separating what is valuable from what is unvaluable, worthless. And uh, that's why God allows us to go through tribulation. It actually produces patience and perseverance and different good things that the Bible talks about we need. Now, look, let me just say this. Um, once I had a, a radio listener... Uh, call into the live program we were conducting, who was mad at me because I said that the church won't go through the tribulation period, but will be evacuated off the earth. 
uh, at the rapture before God judges this world. And uh, he was furious with me uh, that you could hear it in his voice when we were uh, talking on the phone. Uh, he was furious with me that I would deny the clear teaching of Jesus Christ, who told his disciples that we would go through the great tribulation period. And as proof of this, he quoted Jesus' words in John 16, verse 33, where Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. I told him that it is true that Jesus promises disciples that we would have tribulation in this world. But I said there is a difference between the tribulation of the world poured out uh, on the church and then the tribulation or the wrath of God, tribulation of God, the wrath of God poured out on the world. It's a difference now. Jesus told us that as his disciples, the world would persecute us. We would have tribulation. But that's different from the tribulation that uh, John writes about in the book of Revelation where God is uh, judging the world, pouring his wrath out on this Christ-rejecting world. We are promised in Scripture not to have to go through that because we've accepted Christ. We don't have to be punished, uh, you know, with the wicked. We're not wicked anymore. We're believers, right? I'll, I'll let you read 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9, 2 Peter 2, verses 4 through 9, which talks about how that believers will escape God's wrath being poured out on this world, his tribulation. But the tribulation that John is talking about here in Revelation 1 is uh, the tribulation that Jesus spoke of in John 16, verse 33, the tribulation of the world. John was in Patmos because Emperor Domitian was persecuting him, the persecution of the world against the people of God. The word patience in verse 9 is the Greek word hupomone. <laughs> Sounds kind of Italian, doesn't it? Hupomone. Hey, eat your spumone. But, but it's a Greek word, all right? And a, it's a word that actually is comprised of two words. Uh, hupa, which means under, and meno, the verb to stay, remain, or to abide. And so it's a word that literally means to remain under. To remain under. It pictures someone under a heavy load, a heavy load of persecution uh, or adversity, and choosing to stay, to hang in there. Not to bail, not to run away, but choosing to stay there instead of trying to escape or bail on the circumstance. Commentator and historian William Barclay believes that patience is too passive a word to use in the translation of the Greek word hupomone. It's a very rich word, very powerful word. Patience, he says, doesn't do it justice. Barclay said, and I quote, hupomone does not simply uh, accept and endure. There is always a forward look in it. It is said of Jesus that for the joy that was set before him, listen, he endured the cross. Hupomone. Despising the shame, uh, despising the shame, Hebrews 12, verse 2. Barclay says that is hupomone, Christian steadfastness. It is the courageous acceptance of everything that life can do to us and the transmuting of, every, of even the worst event into another step on the ladder upward. So we look at our tribulations um, in a way that 
they make us better as Christians. They bring us closer to God. In fact, they kind of are like uh, steps of a stairway that ascend to heaven, each, uh, each uh, adversity that we endure and so on. Uh, one ancient Greek philosopher called Hupomone, the queen of virtues, the queen of virtues, another described it as the frame of mind which endures. It's true. The word does mean endurance, can be translated that, but uh, it can also be translated perseverance, which uh, it was translated that way in 2 Peter 1, verse 6. So you get the idea. This is a word that um, we, we learn how to deal with adversity, um, and God allows us to experience adversity and tribulation because it has a way of uh, strengthening us uh, so that we don't run away every time some adversity strikes. We hang in there. We seek God. We use it for his glory in some way and so on. All right, well, John says that he was on the island of Patmos when he received this revelation, the island of Patmos. Patmos is a, is a volcanic island in the Aegean Sea, about 10 miles long, 6 miles wide, uh, located some 40 miles offshore from Miletus, a port city uh, on, the, uh, on the southwestern part of Asia Minor, minor modern Turkey. Um, so this island of Patmos, 40 miles off the coast uh, from Miletus. Miletus was about 30 miles south of Ephesus. You can read about that in Revelation, excuse me, Acts chapter 20, how that when Paul was on his way to Jerusalem, the ship um, uh, made port in uh, Miletus. And uh, since it was so close to Ephesus, the town that Paul spent three years uh, ministering in, the church there, he asked some of those guys to go to Ephesus and bring the elders back since he didn't know if he was going to ever see him again, and he wanted to address him one last time. Great chapter for pastors, especially Acts 20. But um, Domitian, the Roman emperor, had put John in exile on the island of Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ, John tells us in verse 9. Now, many believe that this means John had been sent to Patmos for preaching Jesus and teaching the word of God throughout Asia Minor. And it's true that John the Apostle was the bishop of the area. Bishop is the Greek word, Greek word that means overseer, overseer. John was the overseer, the apostle who oversaw the churches of that area, Asia Minor. But also he was an elder in the church of Ephesus. Probably at one time he was the chief elder. We would call him the senior pastor today. Uh, but he's old by this time. And so uh, he stayed on as an elder, but a younger man took the place of the senior pastor at this time. But look, many commentators have said, and look, I have believed them and taught what they have said, all right? But many commentators have said that there was a Roman penal colony in, on Patmos where John, now in his 90s, uh, would have been forced to work in the mines there, in the mines, making his life extremely hard. You can imagine a 90-year-old man working in some kind of mine, uh, mining some substance, uh, some kind of ore. Uh, wow, very difficult way for a man to end his life. Uh, and this is what I have heard from numerous pastors and teachers, that uh, that Patmos was... Uh, had a Roman penal colony there. That's where John was uh, put. 
brutal as it was. However, that might not have been true. Mark Hitchcock, in his commentary on Revelation, says that although he's heard some preachers compare Patmos to Alcatraz, an island prison where dangerous criminals were sequestered from society, Hitchcock says, and I quote, while this makes for dramatic preaching, it's not accurate. There's no evidence that in John's day, Patmos had a penal colony or was commonly used for banishment. We know from history that there was a military garrison, an administrative building on the island, possibly a hippodrome, which would be a horse racing track, uh, a temple to Artemis, the Romans called her Diana, and probably a temple to Apollo. John was probably sent there because it was the closest place Emperor Domitian could use to remove his influence from Asia Minor. One writer summarizes the situation, now he quotes a different author, Life there was not too harsh, as indicated by its, de by its decent-sized population, and two gymnasia, as well as a temple of Artemis. Thus, John would have lived uh, a fairly normal life as an exile on that island. He was likely there only a short time and was allowed to go to Ephesus in a general amnesty for exiles by the emperor Nerva in 96 AD after Domitian died. And so I was wrong. Obviously, Domitian didn't, uh, didn't. I was thinking of a different emperor that persecuted the church from 303 to 313, the one that came just prior to Constantine. But uh, Domitian did. Uh, unleash a terrible wave of persecution against the Christians uh, in that day. But, but listen, even if John wasn't forced into hard labor on Patmos as a prisoner, he was still in exile. He was alone, away from all of his friends and family. And for a man in his 90s, that couldn't have been easy for John to endure. There are times in our lives, and we'll close with this. There are times in our lives when God will put us through periods of what some people have called sanctified loneliness, sanctified loneliness, times of sanctified separation and isolation, listen, for the purpose of revelation. Not self-imposed loneliness or isolation, but God-ordained separation and loneliness. Moses, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Paul, and John all went through periods of loneliness and isolation where they received a greater awareness of God's presence than ever before in their lives. One author said, Learn the lessons of loneliness. Don't run from it. Let Jesus meet you in it and reveal himself to you in a deeper and more intimate way. Look, we'll end there, but let me just say this. Somebody has once said, you can feel alone in a crowd of people. You don't have to be on a Patmos, an island removed literally from society. Um, there are times when you might have felt so alone and you are standing in a crowd of people. It happens. It happens. Many people become so depressed uh, in these times of isolation and aloneness that they begin to drink or take drugs or, in some cases, even commit suicide. Of course, that's what the devil wants. But um, I believe if you're in one of those periods where you're feeling isolated, uh, alone, 
removed from, I don't know, well, we are in a way, of course, through this uh, coronavirus uh, shutdown and uh, quarantine. Yeah, there's a lot of Christians who, this is our Patmos. We are on Patmos in a sense, all right? Some of you are single. Uh, so you're by yourself in your apartment or in your house. You're feeling maybe very alone, um, very um, isolated from everyone, every person that you um, have always leaned on. Of course, you can Zoom and you can, uh, you know, FaceTime and things, but it's not the same, is it, uh, than being in the presence of people. So what do you do? Well, please do not start to drink or take drugs. Please do not contemplate suicide. If that's what you're contemplating, please contact someone, uh, one of the pastors or especially one of the social services that will help you to cope, talk to a counselor and so on. But as a Christian, what would be the ideal thing to do would be to kind of follow in John's footsteps and say, Lord, I'm feeling alone. I'm feeling isolated. But in this time of isolation, I would ask that you would appear to me, reveal yourself to me in a way I've never experienced before. That this, Lord, would be a time where I would feel closer to you than I have ever felt. That as I read your word and pray to you, I would feel your presence. And I would feel, Lord, that this is a time that you're using to strengthen me. Even though the devil is trying to use it to destroy me, that you are using it to strengthen me by drawing me closer to you, if I will allow it. Give me grace to allow it, Lord, that I would seek your face uh, every single day, especially during this uh, sheltering in place kind of thing, this uh, quarantine. And uh, I believe that if you will embrace this time of loneliness and get your Bible out and just spend some time meditating in the presence of the Lord, it could be some of the greatest times of revelation in your entire Christian life. So let's pray that God will help us all to do that. And next time, God willing, we'll pick it up with verse 10. So, Father, let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that um, you're so good to us. And that even when we're alone, we're not really alone because you will never leave us nor forsake us. You are right there. And if we will allow ourselves, we can speak to you. We can open your word. We can pray to you, meditate on your goodness. We can draw close to you and and by doing that, uh, you will reveal yourself to us in a way we never thought possible. Lord, what the devil intends for evil, we pray you would use for good. And uh, out of this loneliness would come a, a deeper appreciation for who you are, a deeper uh, love for you, a, a closeness to you we've never known before. Uh, as you would reveal yourself to us, as you did to John on the island of Patmos, but that we would have a vision of you, Lord, in a sense that we would just see you for who you are, how great you are. So, Lord, we thank you. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great evening.